This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This is Design School. On this episode, we interview Dr. Sean Munson, an associate professor for the Human Centered Design and Engineering Department at the University of Washington. Sean shares how his childhood interest in building naval ships led him to the study of engineering and that using design thinking fueled his interest in asking the right questions to create the right solutions. Sean, thanks for coming and talking with us today. Thanks for having me on this rainy morning. (laughs) Yeah, it is very rainy outside. So to start the conversation off, I think one thing we're interested in is what your story is and your background and kind of what you're doing now and then what your journey was to getting there. Yeah, so I'm currently an associate professor of human-centered design and engineering at Washington. I feel like the way I ended up here is more from the technology side and more from the engineering side. So since I was a kid, uh, I've wanted to be an engineer, Mm -hmm. um, starting first with designing ships at the encouragement of, you know, I I was in kindergarten, I sent this battleship design to the Navy. They explained, (laughs) no, we don't build battleships on specs from kids, uh, (laughs) but maybe you should consider being an engineer and if if that's what you wanna do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Later on that shifted to aerospace engineering and I went off to college with that goal, but also a sense that engineering happens in a world and I wanted to learn about engineering while still being connected to public policy or political science or business. So even then, I was kind of a little more interested in something beyond engineering as a way to produce technology that meets the spec. In college, I focused mostly on systems engineering, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed as a way to think about how do you avoid the biases that you have if you're a mechanical engineer or a software engineer. The mechanical engineer is always going to be like, we can fix this in hardware. And the computer scientists or the computer engineers are like, oh, we've totally got this in software, right? And how do you trade that off? And you need people who are kind of in the middle and and maybe aren't biased according to their own tools. And that's systems engineers. So in parallel to that, I was doing some political blogging and had very much been enjoying the process of trying to get people to talk about things until I realized I was not actually getting people to talk about things with people they didn't already agree with, right? So I was mm. mostly making people a little angrier and maybe some people voted a little more, I don't know. Um, but I wasn't really facilitating an exchange of ideas. And so sometime after the 2004 election, I was just kind of done with it. I woke up and was like, I'm, I'm not helping. So I deleted the blog. And it, around that time, I was also in a, uh, an ethnography class and the professor in that class, Katrin Lynch, and my undergraduate advisor, Rob Martello, both kind of were pointing at me and saying, you know, maybe rather than just burn it all down, there's actually a research question here that you should go study. And so I went off to grad school at Michigan to work with Paul Resnick, who was looking at social capital online, and that seemed like the right place. And then somewhere around the Affordable Care Act debate, I started thinking, well, maybe rather than get people to talk about health, I should work on health. And so my research started pivoting towards healthcare. And... Also in grad school, I had the opportunity to teach 
and realized I liked it. So up until then, my plan had always been, I'm going to go to answer this research question and then I'm going to go back to industry and just have my normal life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then teaching turned out to be really good. uh, And so I wanted to go to academia. uh, And here I am. Here you are. So one part of that story that I'm kind of interested in is like the, I mean, you talked about having a lot of different interests and you're originally studying engineering. Like what was your thought process of being able to figure out like how to integrate some of those other interests in and how did that shift kind of slowly the direction that you were headed in, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it was a slow process uh, Uh and not always deliberate. It was, at first it was how do I make space for both? And so when I was looking at colleges, I'd go and I'd talk with big state schools that had a really strong aerospace engineering program and also had some sort of strength elsewhere, right? And and it took big schools really to find that in a lot of cases. And even then, it was really clear that even if I was integrating those ideas, that responsibility was entirely on me. They'd talk about things like, well, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you'll be up here taking your engineering classes. Tuesday and Thursday, you can go do that other thing that they would never even really recognize as a thing. Mm-hmm. And ran across Olin College, which was, no, 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 engineering actually happens in context. And for engineering to be competitive in the U.S., you actually have to think about the context. That you have to think about policy. You have to think about the people. And the language that they were using was not design, but it was design. And that really resonated with me. It ended up being where I went to undergrad. And then along the way, there was kind of this shift towards systems engineering. At some point, I started questioning whether systems engineering that helps figure out the best way to meet a spec is really what I wanted to do when there's much more interesting work to be done and figuring out what even should the spec be? How do you know if you've met it? What are the right things to measure and value and, and, and choices like that that I found much more interesting uh, a place for me to work. Mm-hmm. You said it was design but not design. Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah, so when I was applying to Olin, I don't think they were using the language of design, but at the same time, they were talking about a lot of the things that I find myself doing in my world of design now of working closely to figure out what's the right ends to achieve, right? So actually defining the problem space. Uh, And I think a lot of the more classical engineering programs train people who are phenomenal at solving a well-defined problem and not very good at questioning whether that definition is good. And that was a concern that Olin's founders were responding to. By the time that I actually showed up as a student, they were starting to realize that design was a big part of this and, and soon started hiring design faculty and adding design courses. And But up until then, design is kind of this process for working through these challenges was something that certainly wasn't on my radar. Uh, and it took taking a required class to find that out. And so what was the epicenter of that design project or design class, design reading that flipped the switch? I don't think it was a a switch that flipped. I think it was going through the process and realizing it was something that I enjoyed and was potentially good at, and then basically taking other classes to see if that was true. Uh, and, And also kind of a little bit of retrospective of saying, oh, well, in other things I've done where I've enjoyed that kind of work, that's what I was doing, right? Uh, and, and I could go all the way back in hindsight to high school projects even earlier and recognize the elements that I enjoyed and start seeing that there was a career here. But, you know, it would be completely dishonest to say that it was that much intentionality. I also still applied for an internship at Boeing for the summer and thought I was going to go basically do standard aerospace engineering things. And somewhere in the phone interview I was talking about the projects I'd done and the things that I liked doing and the interviewer paused and said oh 
oh, we have a place for people like you. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they sent me off to this concept center that was basically a design studio at, at Boeing doing this you know, incredibly eccentric mix of projects looking at five to 15 years in the future, as well as some that were a little closer in. But it, I was saying these things, but not recognizing them. And it took the, the interviewer hearing and, and kind of reflecting on it for me to, mm -hmm. to make that placement happen. What were the types of other people that you were working with there? Uh, all over the map, there were physicists, there were folks who had come more from how do you help work with customers to configure the plane, uh, someone who'd worked on accident investigations at some point, there were a tattoo artist, it was just a, a really great mix of folk, uh, visual designers, industrial designers as well, um, mm. some folks from Teague, uh, yeah. and so within that still relatively small 20-ish person group, you could find the right set of expertise to do something interesting in, in a space and, and learn something. So from there then, what was the decision point to go pursue academia? Yeah, so it was that I taught at Michigan some, and I really valued it. Mm -hmm. And then when I was thinking about career, it was, well, how do I still make space for that? Uh, mm -hmm. How do I make space to teach? Um, how do I make sure that I have colleagues who are great and will push me and uh, I'll still get to learn as I go? How do I have enough freedom or at least am in a place where I'm working on things that I care about and think are important? And academia seemed to offer the most of that. Um, there were some other considerations such as how do I live somewhere that I would really be happy living. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my ordering when I graduated was not must be academia. It was academia somewhere I want to live and that you know supports its people and, and where I'll be happy. And then well, maybe I'd consider industry somewhere I want to live uh, where I value the mission of the company or what I'd be working on. And then I really hoped I didn't have to start making trade-offs below that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's interesting that you're talking about factoring all of those things in because I think like when looking for jobs in academia, it's like always one of those things where I think there has to be a trade-off almost. Yeah, I think I spent about two years being moderately angry every day that no one had explained that to me before I signed up for a PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really only after I had come to accept it that it worked out that I was at UW. But I was yeah. there was a while where I was kind of like, well, oh, there's going to have to be trade-offs, and I don't quite know what it's going to look like. Uh, so I, in the end, just ended up incredibly lucky. So what does life look like now as a uh, associate professor? Is that correct? Oh well, yeah. So right now I'm on sabbatical. So <laughs> it's it's not the the clearest or the the most accurate representation. Uh, so sure. maybe we'll fast forward a year to, to what sure. it should look like, or I think it will look like uh, there is the classic forty percent teaching, forty percent research, twenty percent service model, and that's pretty true. If I probably average across the year, I don't. I don't think that I'm able to neatly draw distinctions between teaching and research. The you know, students I'm mentoring, it's teaching, but we're doing research and, and things like that. There's a lot of work. I think one of the things that I find challenging is that because we have the freedom to work on things we care about, there's this duality between job and hobby at the same time. And so I will often find myself working at night when friends are doing various other hobbies that they have. And I'll think, well, this is messed up. If only I had a nine to five job, I could do my hobbies. Well, what would I, oh, I'd be doing this, right? <laughs> and, and so I kind of go in this little circle with myself where I get annoyed at the workload and then realize that, no, 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 I'm 
doing this to myself. Um, I don't know if this is something that you've experienced. Oh, definitely. Well. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, often my wife will say to me, what are you working on? I'm like, Oh, it's, it's for instance, the newest thing is a map. And like, you're still working on that? No, no, that's another map that I was working on. But this was another one that came because I was thinking about this other project. And Right. And there is, I think, a danger that because as faculty, we are immersed in that work all day and then we go at home. It's at least for me, I find it easy to not give myself space. So for me, a lot of what I'll do in the rest of my life is go hiking or backpacking or places that are really disconnected and that crowd out any of that active work on it so that I actually do get a step back because otherwise I I do think that there's, at least for me, there would be a risk of burnout. If I think about a lot of my projects that have felt more impactful, they've been the ones that have been side projects or or less urgent. And I was talking about this with, with one of my collaborators at one point, like, well, maybe there's actually something to that, right? We're just having that time for them to percolate in the background makes them better in some way, even if it makes them slower, right? And, and there is that trade-off where better but never out in the world is, is also a real problem. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to balance that yet. What's an example of one of those projects? Matt Kay and Cynthia Matuzic had been to this talk on robots as caregivers, and all of the imagery in the project or in the in the talk was you know women as caregivers and mm-hmm. the robots replacing these women. That was kind of like, well, why is this? Why do we assume that women are in these caregiver roles or caregiver careers? And then uh, I think it was Cynthia did a search on Google Image Search for the various professions, and all of the images were women. Mm-hmm. And so we basically through like happy hour complaining we're like well it seems like there's actually a research question here of what happens if this is the representation of of genders and fields uh and what does that mean for people's expectations for how they're further illustrated if you know if google image search is how everybody illustrates their talks then that's going to perpetuate these stereotypes and probably actually then perpetuate the representation on google image search and so we did a study where we looked at well what is the actual representation and one of the final experiments in it was we showed people, or we asked people what their beliefs were about the representation in different fields. And then we had them come back two weeks later, showed them an image search result, and then asked them what they believed the proportion of men and women in each field uh, was. And the actual search results were enough to move that perception, even though it was just a subtle manipulation. And uh, so we see that the tools that you use actually influence your beliefs about the world. I think it's a really interesting challenge for Google of do you represent the data set that is out there, which is probably what they're doing pretty accurately. Uh, they're representing the images that they can find of people in these professions. Do you try and represent the world the way it is? And so the images kind of skew more extreme in their bias than the actual representation in professions now. Or do you actually try and represent the world the way you think it should be or could be, which is an interesting and contestable definition too, uh, but in this case it might be to show balance. But for us, we wanted to just start the conversation. But that one, that whole project happened over kind of a series of happy hours. We'd get busy with other projects and then get another happy hour, sit down and code like crazy for a couple of days or, or a couple hours or something, and then return to it a couple of months later. And, and it turned out really well, but it was slow. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it's interesting that even in defining that space, you're going after the technological tool based off of, well, I mean, it's it's all human-generated content, and like, where does that actually come back 
to like the human or whoever is actually producing that content and putting it out there. Right. The search, to, the search engines are yeah. representing our own biases back mm-hmm. to us, right? right. We're not, this is not a blame Google project. This mm-hmm. is a, what might be the role of search engines in, yeah. in this space, given that we have these these biases in the data that have been produced over years and years and years, and, mm-hmm. and also in how people are, are currently producing uh, yeah. images. Yeah. That's interesting. What do you want to come out of that work? I would be happiest if this is a question that people who are working on the algorithms for various search engine results are now saying, okay, well, now I see how what we choose to represent affects people's beliefs about the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not going to try and have that conversation for them of what, <laughs> yeah. what they should do with it. I think yeah. that there are a lot of really wonderful folks working in that space. And if giving them some data that says this is, or, or some results that say this is what can happen, mm-hmm. and then they can have that conversation in their product teams. And I don't think every product team needs to or should arrive at the same conclusion. If we start good conversations, I trust people to take it from there. Yeah. Do you think that we're ready to have that kind of conversation in in our current climate? Yes and no. Uh, I think different people have different levels of readiness for that conversation. Different organizations have different readiness. Uh, I've been really heartened to see a lot of posts, including, you know, from Microsoft folks about here's how to think about if your algorithm might have bias or if your tool has, is, has negative effects. Um, the, financial community has actually had to think about this for a long time because of the tools they use to approve and deny mortgages. Having bias in there is is not just wrong, it's illegal in in cases. And so they've had pressure to to address that. I think there are other folks out there who still believe that algorithms are purely neutral. Do you feel that your students come with that awareness now as they're more digital natives to to the technology? Or do you feel that there's still a an area of knowledge that still needs to be placed upon them? I, I don't even know if it's an area of knowledge in every case. I, I certainly hope that the students that we train come out with that awareness and, and with the preparedness to have those conversations. One of the techniques that a colleague recommended recently, just making sure that every project that someone does has... A, two questions in it that they answer of, you know, what could go wrong with this, right? Uh, and then what are you actually hoping to achieve? So you, you can't, you can't pretend that you're being neutral. You have to actually acknowledge your own biases and aims, and then you have to see how maybe that could end up poorly for someone. And certainly they won't anticipate every outcome, but at least making space to think about that is an important part of of the design process. And should probably be more emphasized in, in some of our courses and, and hopefully that will be further emphasized then when, when people go out into the world. So sabbatical, enjoying yeah. uh, the, the pause uh, in uh, the academic world. What's, uh, what's next after this? What's the, the next research area? What's the next class? What, uh, what's trending in, in the, the old mind there? Yeah, so my flip answer is I have two more quarters to figure that out. Uh, but one of the things that, that I've become a little bit dissatisfied with in my own work is that a lot of the projects that we do will do some nice descriptive work of the state of the world, will design a system that suggests some possible remedies or ways to address challenges or opportunities that we see. And we'll deploy it for somewhere between three to eight weeks. We'll learn what we need to, we'll write our paper, and we'll publish it and we're hoping that industry will pick it up 
but it doesn't happen immediately. And in the meantime, we say, well, thanks for to the participants. Thanks for using this. Um, we're going to take this away now. Or, or best case, you can use it, but we can't support it because we don't have the resources. Uh, and so at some point, it will just stop working on you. You'll wake up one morning, and your operating system on your phone will update it, and it'll be broken. For getting the ideas out there, that's not entirely satisfying in terms of immediacy. It's also, just in terms of how it feels at the end of the study, not great. And then I think it gives us too much credit for writing good papers, too, that, that people are able to implement. And it also limits the questions that we can answer, right? So you know, what happens as someone is using a health app over a year when they have questions, they can put it away, they can come back to it, they can put it away again. What happens when a lot of people use it and we can start maybe making more population level inferences or something like that? And those are questions I can't answer right now. And I would like to get to a place where we have applications out there longer. I don't know if I want to make the trade-offs to do that. Uh, because it requires a different funding model, it requires dedicating more of my day to supporting those or more of my students' days to supporting those. Uh, it raises big questions about what happens when PhD students graduate and go into the world. And so a lot of my sabbatical has been trying to visit other places that do that and see what the trade-offs are, see how they talk about the projects that seems to enable successes with longer-term studies and then figure out if that works for me. The group I was visiting for the last six weeks in Chicago has done a phenomenal job of doing that with mental health applications and is currently doing a small business grant to try and launch one of them. And so a lot of what they do seemed like a group to emulate, but at one of the first launches I went to, I was asking about, well, you have this kind of staff of people that seems to enable it. What was that like? And first words are, that was horrible, <laughs> right? And so, so there's also things that, that I may not want to do and, and learning that without having to do it would also be useful. Always learning from someone else's failures is uh, not a bad way. Yeah, and then even if we do exactly the same thing, going in with an awareness of the ways in which it will be horrible, we'll hopefully make it better. I wanted to also talk about, well, the department you exist in and essentially what it's been like teaching in in that sort of an environment because the idea of like a human-centered design and engineering program is a, is a relatively new one and i imagine like as a program or area working together to figure out and define what that is i guess there's probably like a little back and forth going on and what it's like existing in that space too yeah i think there's definitely back and forth going on. I think mm -hmm. every person in our department has a slightly different definition of what human-centered design and engineering is or should be or, mm -hmm. or could be. Some people get really excited about thinking about it as a field. Other people get really uncomfortable about thinking about it as a field. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that defines the department is a collegiality and respect for other ways of knowing and other styles of work. But that's not a, a central identity. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, a lot of it, is biased by my experience as a systems engineer where you would take a well-spec problem and turn it into a design that, that meets those specs and, and then make sure that it's delivered on kind of on time or on budget. And I think, or at least my aspiration for the program is that our students will graduate and be prepared to help define those specs to find specs that actually can be achieved in technology and understand how they're achieved in technology, to contest problems when they're not well-defined or when they're problematically defined. I think that right now we still are a little biased towards screen-based design. 
And that's somewhat reflecting just where there's jobs and hiring. And so I think in, in we're serving students' immediate needs and hopefully also preparing them with this long-term sensibility across technologies. Uh, but I suspect we're a little too screen biased, uh, at least in the short term. Yeah, no, I agree. Even in our you know thesis projects and our master's program, I mean, we were encouraged to be pragmatic in a certain sense, but otherwise we really had carte blanche to just like go and explore <laughs> something, <laughs> uh, whatever. I mean, and it was certainly, I remember getting pushback from faculty being like, well, where is this leading you in terms of what you want to do when you get out of here? So like uh, career pragmatic. Yeah, career, but not in terms of like what solution, you know, you come up with because, you know, we very much were well-defined in that, like our role may be to sit alongside somebody that's building it, but that won't be our role in the world. Like we will help somebody build it and define what that should be. But ultimately, like we recognize that we don't always have the skills to do that. Um, yeah, and I teach one of HCD's at least in our undergraduate program, more technical courses. And that's been an interesting one because their students come in partly with that view of, well, I'm going to sit alongside the person and, and so I don't need this class. Mm -hmm. uh, and other students come in and they're more of, they want to be that person, but they want to not have to have someone sit by them. Yeah. Uh, and I think there is still this space where even if you're not, even if you're not building it yourself, being able to communicate efficiently and mm -hmm. clearly with that person is important because I've definitely seen what happens when, when a designer doesn't and, yeah. and the, the mock-up or the prototype comes back and it, it's unrecognizable, uh, or, or doesn't, doesn't do what it was supposed to. Uh, mm -hmm. but, and then there's also a piece of, you know, I think that being able to explore things yourself without having to wait for someone is really valuable. So the extent to which students are able to at least do a prototype, even if it's something that could never be deployed to tens of people, let alone thousands yeah. or millions of people. Yeah. But at least for them, they can work with it and tinker with it is a, a skill that many will benefit from having in their, yeah. in their toolbox. Yeah. And that's one that I wish I would have gotten a little bit further along. We learned processing and things like that, but like there's limitations in that and it's not really efficient, but even having a general understanding of programming and like the technologies that your project will end up in or that it's being designed for having that, I think even just a basic literacy in it allows you to design with that in mind and being able to talk to it and understand it and help the ideas or the, the solution have a chance of, mm -hmm. of existing as you envisioned yeah. it. Yeah. Cause I feel like I've had great conversations with people who are building the work I've designed and they come across a roadblock of like, well, I'm not sure how that would actually work. And I, me knowing like theoretically how things might work, at least have a conversation to be like, well, have you thought about approaching it this way? And then that like, you know, sparks a conversation and it's usually already wor always worked out pretty well of where we figure out together, like how like um, finding it somewhere in the middle yeah, to, to have that the conversation. Common ground. Or, or it may be like doing it in a different way than they would normally think about it. Well, so I'm curious how you would each advise students on, mm -hmm when to be pragmatic and when to maybe take a little more risk or how you do that in practice? Yeah, I think in terms of being pragmatic, I think there's a time and space to be pragmatic and not, right? Like if you're, when you're at the beginning in an ill-defined problem or, you know, there is a little room to be a little less pragmatic and think about like, well, what could this be knowing that like ultimately if you think of something crazy that will probably get distilled down into something that is more pragmatic, but 
will hopefully like evolved out of something that makes it more unique or novel than it would have been if you would have started from a place of being um, a little more realistic. But then also thinking about like students coming out of school. I mean, I think I'm a little biased in that I came out of a program where like very visual, tangible visual skills were always important in that like they're <laughs> like, it's hard for me to disassociate at times like how well somebody able is able to like visually represent their work and separating that from the thinking that can come behind the work. Because you can have a really like beautiful or well-executed project, but it's not really exciting. And I think when I'm in class and teaching students, they're like, oh, like we're going to use X data set or we want to be like this app. And I'm like, well, that's like a really useful thing. And that exists already out there in the world. And there's a team of hundreds of people behind making that. <laughs> right, so you're probably not going to beat a hundred people. Right. Yeah. And that's like an admirable goal, but at the same time, like would doing something smaller in scope, that's really well defined and doing that really well, that's going to mean more and you're going to be able to talk to it better. And it's going to tell a better story. Like whether you're talking about that while you're trying to get a job or presenting it at the end, or even sitting down and testing it with people, the more well-defined it is, um, you know, the better the outcome is going to be. But does that kind of answer your question a little bit? I think so. It's, you know, I always kind of want to poke at it with counterexamples of mm -hmm. some of the, some of the projects that I've been most excited about have been the most kind of on the surface, most mundane possible. Mm -hmm. Like oftentimes on the first day of class, what I'd often do is I'd just take like a mundane object and I'd make everybody go around a circle, introduce themselves, do all that. But then they'd have to pass around this object saying a different thing it could be based off of its shape or its color or something like that and passing it around. So what would be an example? Of uh, I used to use a ball of twine a lot because it like you can like pull it as a string, but it also has a hole in the middle. So like you can use it around. And so like, you know, I'd say, OK, like this isn't a ball of twine. It is a um, like looking glass and you could look through it and then you pass it to the next person and the next person would have to say oh this isn't a looking glass like it's a tin can or like you know something like imagining what it could be and you'd go around and then it would go around and be like okay now we're going to do a whole another circle and they'd all go but then by the end they would kind of like rack their brains and you could see them like kind of reimagining like you know using these basic shapes or like things like that like everything it could be and then I would kind of end it in being like, okay, well, this is kind of what we do in design is we recognize normal patterns around the world and things like that. And we see like commonalities and we kind of reshape them to meet other needs or like see things like that. And part of being a designer is being able to see and reimagine the world in that way. And that's kind of like what you were talking about in terms of like, oh, you're, you're, you know, we have these normal perceptions based off of context and where we are of these words, but as a designer, we have to understand that context, but also know, like, is there a way we want to change that or, you know, but we have to understand both sides of that to do that. Yeah. Actually, I kind of like that. I, I may steal that uh, Please idea. Do. Yeah. Please do. So there's a lot of different programs or ways of thinking about design out there. Even being here, right, I'm a little self-aware that the design that I do or was trained in is certainly not the capital D design that represents your training and your experience. And I'm, I guess one of the questions that isn't super well formed in my mind yet is kind of 
when does design need to be in a program or what pieces should be in a program as a specialty? Where do we build it out so that it's kind of underlying what other people do, right? There's been the push to put design thinking into pretty much anything now. And sometimes I feel really good about that. And sometimes I'm like, well, does it kind of reduce it too much or simplify it in a way that, that people will not know when to go get help if people have maybe more training or more experience? And you know, what, what do you think is the future of kind of field or fields and, and the way that we train students across the different programs? I mean, I guess I think of like, there's the skill of design and there's a process of design. Like what we're seeing now is like the process of a skilled designer being pulled out and defined as its own thing and being applied to multiple things. And that in and of itself redefines what design is. And in some ways that's really exciting because, you know, there's value in that. In some ways it's frightening because there's a lot of designers out there that are like, okay, well, if somebody else is taking away like what they think is their unique thing, then all of a sudden, like now I just turn into somebody that does, (laughs) um, because they've offloaded like the thinking to somewhere else, somewhere out, like out on the chain. But for me, and this is one thing, like, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about what is human centered design and how is that different than any other design process or like, what other design processes are out there and how are they different and having that conversation and it's made me think about there's like human-centered design which I I very much think of as like a particular process that has certain values associated with it and also limitations with it and if you compare that to like you know something like adversarial design or speculative design it's like well those could use a human-centered design process but they're doing it through a different lens is like an approach or they have, they're like overlaying a different set of values over it, which makes you think about it. You could do the same thing, but it's like, you're looking at it through a different lens. Um, now I'm almost wondering if there's kind of a training around that the repertoire of values or mm-hmm. that people yeah. can approach a, yeah. a design space yeah. with, right. You know, I don't want to say like a problem because part of what they're doing is defining it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's that there's a certain kind of core element that may be the most common in a discipline that people are trained with, but yeah, you go outside when you need someone who can bring a perspective outside of whatever you know, you, yeah. you, your group is most mm-hmm. used to using. Well, yeah, because I think the other part of that is like there's there's a lot more hyper-specialization in design than there used to be. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, mean, design definitely. is existing in a lot more places than it did, and because of that, like... There's a lot more specialization in areas. Which also creates the same problem that we probably have in engineering of right. Right, people become biased in using mm-hmm. their tool even, or, or you know, their, their hyper-specialization even yeah. when it's not quite the right one for, for whatever they're facing. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's a really tough thing. Facing the field is like this, like we're getting more and more specialized, but we don't always have like really good language to define what that means. Um, or inconsistent language. Or inconsistent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're nearing the end, and we usually end the show now with uh, a couple of quick questions. We call it the recommendation list. Quick, simple, easy. Do, do you mind if uh, we ask for a couple of recommendations from you? Okay. I will tell you that I'm often very bad at recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll make it uh, painless, hopefully, as possible. Uh, you were just in Chicago. What would you say your favorite uh, place to eat in Chicago? Uh, so there it was a restaurant 
about three blocks near where I was staying called Gather, and I had to set a quota of I could go at most once a week. <laughs> and what kind of food? Uh, basically American, but they had a nice seasonal fall menu. Oh, nice. Really good Arctic char, despite being in the center of the country. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, deep dish or thin crust? Deep dish is casserole. <laughs> I like you already. <laughs> a notepad or uh, or a sketchbook or an iPad or a tablet? Yes. <laughs> um, usually I have a notepad, uh, but if it's text, I'll try and keep it in an iPad because mm-hmm. it's searchable. What have you been listening to? So... Uh, Genevieve Bell has this nice podcast on changing academic life. So for that conversation we're having about like the duality of hobby and and work and and some of the other pressures on academics, I think I valued it a lot. It's one that I like my students to listen to because it gives them perspectives different from mine. Nice. And Metrics, uh, most recent album, Art of Doubt in my head a lot too. Mm. That's good. Uh, what's, what's a reading you think is important or hasn't gotten enough attention or could be a book or an article tad hirsch and some others uh, wrote a paper uh, design contestability interaction design machine learning and mental health uh, i think it's important as we get more and more sensor data and more and more kind of algorithmically generated recommendations uh, for thinking about well how do we help people push back on what the system says about them mm-hmm. yeah is that uh, available uh, in a book or is it's that a, a paper and it's um, public access because it was NIH funded. So thank oh, you taxpayers. Okay. Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, we'll link to that in our uh, show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the last one I was going to ask on is a good hike you'd be willing to share with the public. I know on your Instagram, you always post beautiful pictures <laughs> of the wilderness. I know. And I recently had a conversation about the appropriate level of specificity to geotag things with and, mm. I think that's also a challenge. Uh, it could be a whole other podcast on the effects of social media. Season five will have you back. <laughs> <laughs> what well, won't get me in trouble with folks too, right? Where they'll be like, you just shared my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. Rather than recommend any one hike, I would encourage people to check out the Pesatan wilderness. It's uh Many of the hikes are a really long walk in, uh, but it's beautiful and underexplored despite having probably hundreds of miles of really beautiful trails. Uh, and uh, you'll have to look at a map and look at other resources to figure out what's right for you. It's a great answer. Get people out there into nature. Well, Sean, thanks for being on the podcast with us. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at T-I-D-S Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.